Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A man whose life went off the rails is back on track. His goals, though, to be the best father he can be and have a fulfilling life with friends and family are about to be shaken to its very core. Upon the discovery of a black stone and a number of letters about a gravekeeper, his life will be changed forever. Welcome, listeners, to a five-part story titled, I Found a Coffin Buried in My Backyard. There was a letter inside, written by Veristal. This does have some explicit language, so please, not for young ears. And this story also covers sexual abuse, so please, again, no younglings. <laughs> Albeit not detailed, there is at least mention of it. So I thought I'd let you all know. And right now, I'm drinking tea called Midnight Mint. I want to read out the breakdown of what's in this tea, though. Let's have a look here. Send yourself back to a night at Posh London Hotel with a single sip of this chunk minty brew. On a plush bed of robust black tea, we've combined notes of dark chocolate with fresh peppermint flavors. It's the after-dinner mint you can sip. I also like how it says you can enjoy it with, and it puts dot dot dot, perfect on its own. Damn right it's perfect on its own. It is just lovely. Seriously delicious. I kept thinking about how it tasted like I was drinking a mint choc ice cream. Yum! Also, stay tuned to the end. If you want to listen to some SoundCloud shoutouts, there's going to be a lot, because I love doing them, and I haven't done them for such a long time. So I have a massive backlog of thank yous and high fives to give. Next week though, I'll be doing YouTube and iTunes. But until then, grab your own beverage, turn off the lights, turn up the sound. And let's listen to something different. My wife left me last winter. I'd like to say it was undeserved. But the truth was, I had been slowly making the transition from social drinker to sloppy drunk for the past several years. If I ever was, I had stopped being a good husband or father the last couple of years for sure. And it's a miracle Sandra tried as long as she did, before packing up our little girls and moving back to her old hometown. After several months of self-pity and self-loathing, I began getting my shit together. I started attending group meetings, working harder at my job, and rebuilding a life for myself and the people I love. I never had any illusions of me and my wife getting back together, some things can't be unsaid or undone. But I did want to be a good father again. I wanted to gain joint custody and have a home that my kids could come and feel comfortable in. Not the forced March trips I had seen with some divorced fathers who either didn't really want to see their kids or at least did very little to make a place for a child in their lives and in their houses. So I fixed up bedrooms for both of them. They came with their mother and picked out the colours for their walls and the furniture they wanted. I was excited to see them, but also for them to have a chance to see me. Sandra hugged me when they left, telling me that she was so happy I was doing so much better. And if I could keep it up, she added, she'd be happy to agree to joint custody. This just motivated me further. Summer was coming up in a couple of months, 
and my hope was that I could get time with them during their break from school. So I looked up summer programs, found attractions and parks we could go to, and set about getting someone to put in a swimming pool. We had talked about getting a swimming pool for years, but had never had the money. Surprisingly, working hard and not pissing away large chunks of money on booze allowed me to save up enough for a good down payment on the pool fairly quickly. By May, I had workers out in my backyard with a backhoe. It was a Saturday, and I was watching them with interest and satisfaction as they began digging out the space for the pool. Within minutes, they had a good portion of it dug, but then they stopped amid waved arms and yelling. I stepped outside to see what the commotion was. Rick Jarvis, the contractor on the job, came up to me with a strange look on his face. Mr. Sullivan, do you know anything about someone being buried on this property? I started to laugh, but it died in my throat as I realized he was serious. No, of course not. Are you saying you found someone buried in my yard? He shrugged before taking off his hat and mopping his forehead with the back of his hand. I don't know yet. The boys are still getting it up, but they think they hit a coffin down there. The coffin was a seven-foot-long, three-foot-wide wooden box that had been buried some ten feet down in our yard sometime before we moved in a decade earlier. I felt the weight of dread and anxiety as they pulled the box free from the ground with yellow straps and slid it onto the grass a few feet away. One of the men approached Jarvis and told him they thought it was empty because it was so light, and after nodding, Jarvis turned back to me. It's your call, sir. It may be some weird old prank or something. We can open it up and see if anything is even inside, and if there's not, no harm, no foul. We just go back to digging, or we can go ahead and call the authorities, but that's going to slow things down, whether there's a body in there or not. I glanced at the partial dug hole, and the coffin. More time would mean more money, and it wouldn't hurt just to look. I turned back to the contractor, and nodded. Yeah, go ahead and check it out. No need to call somebody unless we find something. Jarvis grinned and called a couple of his men over with a crowbar. With a bit of grunting and the squeal of rusty nails, they pried the top off the coven. I stepped closer as the wooden lid fell aside and felt a surge of relief when I saw it was empty. Well, mostly empty. There were several sheets of paper scattered across the coffin floor, as well as a small, mostly corroded metal flashlight that looked a good 40 or 50 years old. Looking closer, one of the men also picked out a small black rock and the stub of an old wooden pencil. Jarvis collected the items and held them out to me like an offering. Where do you want me to put these things, sir? They're yours, after all. His expression was unreadable, but I could hear a wire of tension reverberating in his words. I almost told him to just throw it all away, but I had seen writing on those pages and was curious. So I just took the items and carried them inside. When I come back out, I stopped two men from dragging the coffin away, telling them that I'd take care of it. I didn't want them wasting any more time, and I hadn't decided what I wanted to do with it yet anyway. They had already set the lid back on top, so I dragged the entire thing around to the side of my garage, 
before setting it down. As I did so, the lid slid off again and landed with the interior side face up for the first time. The inside of the lid was covered in scratches. Darkly stained scratches that could have easily been old, dried blood. My skin crawling, I leaned closer and saw what looked like a small piece of fingernail jutting out of one of the deep grooves in the stained wood. How was any of this possible? Surely it was all fake. Or there'd be a body, right? Glancing around, I saw no one else could see the lid from where they were working, and I found myself secretly hoping they hadn't noticed it before. I wanted time to think before anyone started yelling someone had been murdered or buried alive on the very spot I was planning on putting a pool for my little girls. Covering the coffin with a tarp from the garage, I went back inside to look at the items we had found. The rock was a small, flat oval of smooth black stone, and holding it in the palm of my hand, I was surprised by its weight and how cool it felt. It had an almost greasy texture to it, and after a few moments, I put it down with mild disgust. The flashlight didn't work, of course, but from what I could make out of its shape underneath the green rust, it reminded me of flashlights I had seen at my grandfather's house as a child. He had worked as a plumber most of his life, and he always kept a large silver flashlight close at hand. The pencil, such as it was, consisted of an inch-long nub of wood, lacquered with faded green paint and stamped with barely legible letters, in what was once gold foil. But when I held it to the light coming through the window, I could make out... Green Heart Ho. It didn't ring a bell, so I set it aside and began to glance through the papers. The paper was clearly old and of very high quality. It felt more like a bedsheet than paper I was used to, and I was impressed it had survived so long in the damp of the earth. But not only had it survived, it was fairly legible. Most of the pages were filled with a neat, slanted pencil scrawl and clearly numbered as pages of a long letter. The last was written in larger, harsh slashes across the entirety of one sheet. The black lines of lead seemed to scream from the page. Do not take anything from the coffin. Bury it again and forever. Do not touch the stone. Do not answer the gravekeeper. My mouth went dry as I read the words. This didn't feel like some kind of strange joke, and my curiosity had curdled into an acid fear deep in my belly. At that moment, I felt certain in my actions, in my conviction, that I needed to do what the message demanded, at least as best I could. I gathered up the other pages and pencil, intent on putting everything back in the coffin and telling them to rebury it. The pool could wait or go somewhere else, I'm not superstitious by nature, but something was very wrong with all of this, and I wanted no part of it. I stopped short when I realized I didn't see the stone. Swallowing hard, I checked under the table and all around the floor. As I grew more desperate and tried to allow for some miracle of physics that had led to the stone rolling a farther distance, I spread out my search as I tossed my living room and adjoined rooms for the small black rock. But nothing. It was just gone. 
There was no chance someone had taken it. I had been standing less than two feet from it the entire time, from when I set it down to when I saw it was missing. Still, I found myself considering asking the men outside anyway if anyone had seen it or taken it. I felt foolish at the thought, but my self-consciousness was being outpaced by my growing dread. Reaching for the door that led out to where they were working, I froze as I looked out the window. All work had stopped and most of the men were gathering around Rick Jarvis, who was thrashing about on the ground as though he was having some kind of fit. My first thought was epilepsy, but then I realized he was screaming. He was clawing at his eyes as he wailed, and even from a distance I could see blood slinging off into the freshly turned earth and surrounding work boots. And his men, his friends and workers, they weren't trying to help him at all. They were just watching. I didn't go outside. I knew of no way I could help Jarvis, and I was terrified by what I was seeing. So instead, I called 911 and waited by the window as the contractor's thrashing finally slowed and then stilled. The men around him had grown quiet now, standing motionless for several minutes, until as one they began to glance at each other with some degree of confusion. There were four men out there aside from Jarvis, and I could have sworn from their expression that they didn't understand what was going on or what they were doing. But they didn't move to help Jarvis either. Instead, they went slowly back to digging the hole, as though their companion wasn't laying a few feet away dead or dying. They looked up, dazedly, at the approach of ambulance and deputy sirens, not showing any real apprehension or concern. Moving to the front door, I ran out and waved at the approaching vehicles, pointing around to the back of the house. The next few minutes were a flurry of activity. I was kept at the front of the house talking to a deputy, but I caught glimpses as two EMTs loaded Java still somehow alive into the back of the ambulance while two other deputies questioned his men. For my part, I told Deputy Elson that I had seen Jarvis having a seizure and clawing at his face, and that his men had seemed to be acting strangely, but that I had not seen any of them actually try to hurt or help the man. All of this was true, but I left out any mention of the coffin or what we had found inside. I had thought about whether to go into these extra details with law enforcement or the EMTs while I waited for them to arrive having given only bare-bone details to the 911 operator when I called it in. In my estimation, one of two things was true. Either there was something supernatural and sinister going on here, or there wasn't. If there was, me telling other people about it would do little good except undermine my credibility and possibly have the other writings I hadn't looked at yet taken away from me. If everything had a mundane explanation, then the coffin and its contents were likely irrelevant. Even if the coffin had contained some kind of toxin, they would likely find it through testing Jarvis. I knew there were holes in my reasoning, by the feeling that the dire warning I had read was earnest and true, which meant I needed to assume I was dealing with something that I didn't understand and that wouldn't be understood by the average doctor or cop as well. So I held things back, hoping it would all go away, but knowing in the recesses of my heart, that I wouldn't be so lucky. 
20 minutes later I was driving to the hospital. Before I had left home, one of the other deputies had come up and told Ellison that the other men had given very little in the way of statements beyond that Jarvis had started having some kind of fit and they didn't know why. The deputy said with a meaningful look that based on their responses and demeanor, he had suggested they all get checked out medically, but they had refused treatment and started leaving the worksite once he was done with his questions. Ellison had clenched his jaw and nodded. Just make sure you have all those birds info so we can talk to them again. Turning to me, his expression softened slightly. I can't make them see the doctor and don't have any reason to arrest them, but this is all very fishy sounding. I appreciate your help, and I'll be talking again to you soon. I knew that Elson didn't entirely trust what I had told him either, and I didn't blame him. As I turned into the hospital parking lot, I went back through what I had said for the tenth time, wanting to make sure I hadn't left out anything that might be helpful while not delving into those things I felt I needed to keep to myself. Not able to think of anything, I stepped out of my car and headed into the visitor's entrance to the ER. I had hoped to see some of his co-workers come to check on Jarvis as well, as that would at least give me some indication of them having returned to normal. But no one came. For the next two hours, I sat on an orange chair of molded plastic in the outdated and stale-smelling waiting room. My only company? The drone of some afternoon talk show from a ceiling-mounted TV and a sad-looking old woman who sat on the opposite end of the room. I wasn't even sure why I was there, other than I felt somehow responsible for what had happened to Jarvis, and I hoped that by staying I might either get some answers or at least absolve myself of some guilt. After the first hour, a doctor came out and told me that they had him stable and sedated, and they were planning on doing surgery that evening, but that since I wasn't family, it would probably be at least a day or two before I'd be able to go in and see him. When I asked if his eyes were going to be okay, the doctor had just given me a bleak look and said he couldn't discuss any medical details with me while shaking his head slowly side to side. I felt sick to my stomach as he left. I debated leaving then, but I didn't really want to go back home and had nowhere else to be. So I sat, turning things over in my mind for several minutes before realizing, with a start, that I had the pages from the coffin with me. I had been worried about the deputies finding them, so I had gently folded and tucked them into my back pocket before they arrived. Pulling them out now, I glanced again at the page of screaming warnings before setting it aside. As far as I could tell, the rest of the sheets of paper were all one long letter. So I started reading it from the beginning, as the day outside passed through soft twilight in its journey towards darkness. To whom it may concern, my name is Emily Thurman. I write this in the bedroom that has served as my prison for nearly 20 years, or at least as a cell within the larger prison that is this house, this family, this existence. I was treated well enough for the first two decades of my life, for during that period I played the role of a dutiful daughter in a well-to-do family as was expected. When my uncle Frederick attempted to interfere with me sexually was the night that my troubles began. He was not held to account thanks to my father's misogyny and my mother's desire for her brother's favor and business acumen. Even then, our family was heading for shallower waters financially 
and this was more than two decades before the collapse of 1929. For my part, I was treated coldly for my accusations if not called an outright liar. This caused me more than a little distress, but I had resolved to marshal my resources and leave the cooling embrace of my family for leaner, but hopefully greener, pastures elsewhere, as soon as possible. Then, one night in January of 1909, three months after the incident with my uncle, I found myself woken roughly by strange men. My first thoughts were of robbery or abduction, but as I was carried through the house, I saw my family standing by and watching. Father looked troubled but stood silent. Mother and Frederick stared blankly into the distance as I was carried by them, screaming and thrashing against my captors. It was all for naught. I was thrust into a waiting motor car that marked the beginning of my journey to Greenheart Home. Greenheart Home, as I would soon learn, was a private institution tucked away like a handmaiden's secret in the black woods of Northern California. One could call it a mental ward, a retreat, or a prison, and not be wrong, but Greenheart's true purpose was a place of forgetting. Wealthy and prominent families would send their troubled children, their embarrassing parents, their undesirable mistakes to Greenheart, and there they would stay, under the guise of mercy and the pretense of establishment. My official diagnosis at Greenheart home was melancholia and female disease. As though being a woman was some kind of blight in and of itself. Those first few weeks, I railed against every encounter, demanding my freedom or at least to speak to someone in control. Over time, I learned that my freedom had died as soon as I spoke out against my uncle, and that whoever was in control, the salient point was that it was not me. This led, as one might imagine, to a period of depression. Greenheart was not an unpleasant place aesthetically, as keeping up appearances and saving the conscience of those families that dumped their refuse here required a certain veneer of comfort and respectability. But a gilded cage is still a cage, and I wanted no part of any of it. My attempts to escape were foiled, and eventually, my period of despair became burdensome in its own right. So one day, I woke up resolved to make a kind of life in that place. I had shunned most social contacts since my arrival, but once I opened myself up to the other women there, I found several fast friends. Just to be able to talk to people again, particularly others that shared my plight, was a blessing. In some ways, the next two years were the best of my life, as bizarre as that might seem from the outside. Living at Greenheart was much like living most places, in that eventually you grow accustomed to things you would have never thought possible. At any given time, there was around 150 women and young girls at Greenheart Home, and the fact that periodically people would be gone without warning, never to return, seemed strange but not sinister. We would be told their family had sent for them and that would be the end of it. We had no way to dispute it, and no recourse even if we had the desire. It wasn't until later that we began to realize what was really happening to our fellow inmates. The ruler of that terrible little kingdom was a man named Dr. Chester Middleton. A psychologist of some esteem to hear the nurses tell it, though the only times we ever saw him was passing through as he spoke to this nurse or that orderly, occasionally at mandated functions and the night of the fire that ended it all in 1911. 
But even before that night, there was always a tension in the air at Greenheart. A hidden power struggle between two unlikely opponents, the Head Doctor and the Gardener. Elias Meeks was a large and sullen man, with a stormy disposition and a thick Eastern European accent that seemed to come and go depending on whether he wanted you to understand his dark mutterings or not. He had apparently been the groundskeeper at Greenheart Home for a number of years, and to a person, everyone seemed to be terrified of him. Mostly this was a subtle thing. The staff would avoid him whenever possible, avoiding his eyes when he approached. For Meek's part had radiated a feeling of menace like living heat, but I never saw him be actively cruel or violent with anyone, which was more than I could say for some of the nurses and orderlies. But that did little to lessen our fear of him. We would watch him cutting the grass or repairing the roof, and my small group of friends would instinctively pull closer as we hustled past. He would occasionally take special care with the private cemetery at the edge of the grounds, and it was from this that he earned the nickname that we all called him by when he was out of earshot, The Grave Keeper. I let out a small gasp as I felt my cell phone vibrating in my pocket. Pulling it out, I didn't recognize the number, but decided I should answer given the day I was having. It was Deputy Ellison. Where are you at, Mr. Sullivan? I am still at the hospital, the ER waiting room. Why? There was a pause, and I could tell the deputy was debating how much he could say. Letting out a deep breath, he went on. <sighs> because out of those four guys out there with you, and Jarvis today, two of them went home and murdered their families in the last hour. We've got bolos out on the other two, and I was about to put one on you if I couldn't get a hold of you. I couldn't breathe. How was any of this possible? I... You still there, Mr. Sullivan? Yes, yes, I'm here. They... They killed their families. I could hear the weariness in the other man's voice. Yeah, worst thing I've ever seen. We had to shoot one of them down, and the other is still holed up in his house. But as far as we can tell, we have at least six dead so far. Seven, if Jarvis doesn't make it. I was about to tell him what the doctor had told me when the lights went out. Plunging the waiting room into total darkness. After a few moments, a couple of security lights flicked on fitfully, but no more. Looking around, I saw no people or any of the normal noises I would expect in a hospital. Even the little old woman had left at some point. It was like I was in a tomb. Deputy, the power just went out here in the hospital. It's dark. Another moment of contemplative silence, and then his voice was back, shot through with anger and fear. That's impossible. Even if the hospital loses power, the backup jennies would kick in within less than a second. There's too much that could go wrong if they really lose power. I gritted my teeth as I started slowly making my way to the double doors that led into the deeper bowels of the hospital. Peering through the narrow windows in the doors, I saw only darkness punctuated by two dim and flickering security lights on my end of the hallway. The other end was utterly black and devoid of life. I'm fucking telling you it's dark. 
No lights outside either, as far as I can tell. And I don't see any people. It's like a ghost town in here. I'm leaving, but you should get someone over here. No, the deputy said, his voice more shrill this time. You stay put. You're either a potential victim or a potential suspect. But either way, you and me are going to talk more before you go anywhere. I'm on my way. With that, he hung up, and I found myself staring dumbfounded at my phone. It took me only a moment of internal debate to decide he could go fuck himself, and that I'd see him later when I wasn't scared out of my mind. Something was terribly wrong here, and I was leaving. That's when I heard the voice from somewhere deep in the shadows. In the moment it took me to register it fully, I felt a surge of relief at having contact with another person. Then I realized who was speaking to me from some nearby darkened hall. It was Rick Jarvis. His voice was strange and gravelly, and he had a strange lilt to his words that I didn't remember from my previous conversations with him. But it was him alright, and he was calling to me. I know you're out there, Sully. I might not see you, but that's alright. Yes, that's alright. He trailed off in a wet, uneven croon, almost as though he was lost in thought. Then he was back, his voice brighter and closer sounding. Yeah, I can't see you, but I can smell you. Sully, just stay where you are and I'll be with you shortly. My heart thudding in my chest, I turned to run towards the exit just as I heard a metallic clunk ring through the doors. I hit them hard and bounced off, the magnetic locks giving very little as I shoved against them again and again. After my fifth attempt, I stopped, forcing myself to slow down and think, slow down and listen. There had to be emergency exits. They couldn't lock like this that he couldn't lock like this. I just had to avoid him for... There you are, my boy. The voice was right behind me, loud as a gunshot in the dark. Now, let's get to know each other better. Ah, yes. I've learned from many of my readings Never open backyard coffins and touch black stones in said coffins that have nail scratch marks in them. I'd think if I saw that coffin, I'd contemplate the pool entirely just saying, yeah, look, just cancel the whole pool thing. Now, I have to wonder what the hell Jarvis has in store for Sully. There was no mention of Jarvis's eyes, his condition, or what on earth was going on in that hospital. And when the lights turned off, I can only imagine that Sully is no longer in the same realm anymore and Jarvis has pulled him into the realm of the dead. What do you think is going on here? Hmm. As I haven't read the remaining parts, because, you know, I want to experience it fresh as I'm reading it, I'm thinking it's along those lines, and maybe, just maybe, that Deputy Ellis knows more than he's letting on. We'll see. <laughs> now it's time for the long overdue shoutouts to SoundCloud supporters. Let's do this. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to go through all the top 10 listeners in the past 7 days, then on to people who are liking and retweeting, and just showing the podcast some love. As of warning, there's 10 to 15 minutes of shoutouts, so feel free to skip this part if you like. The top 10 listeners in the past 7 days are... 
the listening machine that is Bree. Thank you so much. Troy Shaw, a classic listener all the way back when I first started. Mace Joe, Quinn and the Bunny Quinksy, Roljex Leds, Steed, Chunks the Kid, Slim Chetty, and Doug Hill too. And now for some special thank yous to those who listen, like, and retweet. So let's get to it. Paul Grayling, Star Eve 2099. A special mention to you because you let me know about the skips that crop up into some episodes. Thank you so much. Papa Emeritus, Sniped IT, John Hartman, Menos Ghost, Tracy King Varna, Oscar Sanchez 51, Sid Hearth G1, Chad Warren, Zio, Batman, oh yeah, Sokase Rov, Tommy Rato, Jonas Geisler, Casmo, Evolution, Marlon Govender, Frostwolf, Marie Cullen, Josie Carasquillo, Mr. Grunt, Thistles Matt Burris, Orlando Grace, Carmicelli Bosi, Jackson Joseph, The Red Brigade 621, a listener and an author on the podcast, DJ Knox, Dead Gallery, Marvin Withkin, Potter Place Parish, Sin, Lonk LTD, Double Consciousness, Business Transformers Radio, Valkyrie, Blackthorn, Serenity Heartbeat, Podcast Lover, Amanda, Super PP Time. If you haven't heard of them before, check out their podcast. They are brilliantly funny. VM Land, Hex Katosnik, Paris Michaels, an author on this podcast. She wrote, I like to watch them wriggle. Cadavercast, a father and son monster movie podcast. Really, really awesome show. Family friendly. Covers all ranges of classic horror genre. Worth checking out for sure. Another special mention to Brie, who's gone on a liking spree. Goodness. Thank you so much. Barbara Perez for the recent follow. Inaudible Ruckus. Lois Shields, Bram Frame. Methy Cyclohexene. Elizabeth Kern. Tane Southern. Michelangelo Yacone, another author on the podcast. Absolutely brilliant. Snafood Podcast, Dalton Souza. Martha Martini, Joanne Romay. James Isaac. Obelisk the Tormentor, R.P. Hackey, Virginia Garcia, Dark Shiki, who submitted her dark poems on the podcast, thank you so much, Irene Masol, Wesley Seawright, Rebecca McGow, Silent Agony, Ment, Darlin Wegman, Abdullah Nasir, Ricardo Pedro, Life Isn't Wasted on Us, another author on the podcast, great writer as well, Pazka, Josh Kastner, Batman, Drunk Tendo 64, Blackout Supreme, Laurie Bennett 2, Jekyll Hyde, Luna Oddity, Living Corporate, Paige Martini, Bryce Nelson, Abel Martinez, Kellig Bishop, Logan Porter, Franklin Morales 3, Bedtime Stories with a Z, Exploding Earths, Luluni, Russell Phillips, Marin, Richard Darling, Skullface, That Juan Dude, XX Raven XX, Darren Dor, Morinier, Eric Ponvelli, Jupiter Vanso, Ghost, the That's What She Said podcast, Smeden Sweden, <laughs> Corey Lehman, Siren NYC, Joshua Morgan, Six Toppy, Caitlin Keller, Zen Business Podcast, Empathic Warrior in Pink, Engler Hallen, The Wild Gents Podcast, Unseasoned, Marcus Maxwell, Devin Costa, Alex Rosells, Samantha Marshall, Kama, Sound Squirrel, Judeni Proska, Oh, Brian Meza H, Slayer Shah, Man Brain Podcast, NCM Endaguni, Oscar Sanchez 51, Jose Pedro, Dorian Young, Vimarina, Divided by Zero, 
Chacha Pardesi, Ricardo Caicedo, and the Aora Channel. I'll stop there for now. There are more. I will cover them in another podcast episode. But I just want to let you know, thank you all so much. If I've missed you in this lineup, don't stress. I will definitely cover you in the next podcast episode. It's my priority to say thanks. So thank you so much. And if you have any time at all, share it with your pals. If you have any story recommendations, send them my way to storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. And lastly, if you have any time, an iTunes review takes two seconds by clicking on my logo in the iTunes page, and bam, you can leave an iTunes review that way. So thank you so much, and I'll see you Monday. For more to the tale, I found a coffin buried in my backyard. There was a letter inside. By your author, Veristal. Have a great weekend, stay creepy, and as always, till next time.